Today we're going to talk about a subject that hits really close to home for Michelle and I as parents, and for many of you as well. The subject of what happens when our children do things that we wish they wouldn't do. I invite you to grab your Bibles or in your YouVersion app and turn to Luke chapter 15. You've probably all been around parents who just had a little baby and you've watched as those parents go all googie and, and crazy about how adorable and how cute and how perfect their little child is. I would suggest that none of us ever look at that little baby and think, hey, maybe one day my baby will grow up to be so lazy that they never want to leave the house. We never think that we'll give them some money and then they'll go crazy with a credit card. We desire for them to be confident, but to not get really cocky. We never think of our children that, that they're going to become addicts or abusers or felons, and yet it happens. As the parent of five kids, one of the things that I've thought and prayed about is, what does God have in store for my child? What is God going to do with it? But let me tell you that I never thought, maybe one day I'll be able to take you to rehab. Maybe someday I'll be able to make uh, watch you make poor choices that will affect not only your life, but the life of your family as well. I never thought that maybe my children will be suicidal or rebellious or violent. As parents, we just don't think that way. And yet, occasionally, the ones we love end up going in the wrong direction. And we ask the question, now what? We're beyond asking why. We're asking, now what? And I'm not talking hypotheticals here. Many of you know our story, and, and I know a lot of yours. We want to believe that if we just have really good intentions, and if we try really, really hard, that our kids are going to turn out okay. They just have to, right? And yet we see examples all around us, every day, as well as those in scriptures, that it's just not always the case. In the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 13, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Samson who had every opportunity to get it right. God has something special in mind for Samson. An angel appeared to his mother and told her about the son she was going to have. That's got to give you a huge advantage right there, right? He came from a great family. He had great parents, all sorts of advantages. He was stronger than an ox, and God was on his side. But despite all of that, he effectively broke every single Nazarite vow. He struggled with lust problems and got into trouble with women time and time again. Eventually, because of his sinfulness, he had his head shaved, which is a tremendous disgrace. His eyes were gouged out. He was paraded all around town where people mocked him, and they mocked God, and they mocked his parents. But when you look at everything that was done when Samson was a child, if anyone should have gotten it right, it was Samson. Today, we're going to talk about the perspective of a parent when things don't go the way we want them to go. Um, someday, um, if you haven't experienced that, maybe a, a friend or a loved one has a prodigal and you're seeing what's happening through them, and this is not a desire that I hope this happens to you, but there may be some point in the future that this does happen to you. And what I want you to know is that in those seasons of hurt and in those seasons of loneliness and, and emptiness and panic and pain, there's one thing that I know has been very helpful for us, for Michelle and I, and that is this fact, and I invite you to write this down in your bulletin, that God understands parental pain. God gets it. No one understands this better than God does. If you look at the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, God is speaking about his children. He's speaking to Israel, and he says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. 
He went on to say this in verse 3, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manager, but Israel does not know my people do not understand me. In other words, he's saying the animals even know who they belong to. They know who they're accountable to, but, but my children, God says, my, my people, they, they don't. They don't understand. God understands this parental pain. And if you think about God for just a minute, you think about who God is and what he's all about. God was perfect, right? Is perfect. He created this perfect environment in the garden, put Adam and Eve there and said, here you go. You have every opportunity to succeed. You can do anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. You, you can eat anything you want except this one tree, right? Go, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, rule over it. You're naked, have lots of kids, enjoy the garden, right? That's, that's what he told them, go. And what'd they do? Well, we know the story. They ate of the one thing they weren't supposed to eat of, and God disciplined them, and he disciplined them with love. We talked about that last week. He told Adam, you know what, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to toil all day long, and the, and the earth is going to be more difficult to produce its crop. Eve, you're gonna, going to submit to your husband, and, and when you have children, it's going to be really painful. And then he let them face the consequences of their sin. In the book of Judges, if, if you read a little farther there in the Old Testament, you see that God allowed his children to face the consequences of their sin. He allowed them to go down that path. He, he would punish them and discipline them, and they would continue to rebel and stray uh, away from him. Then God decided, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon his people. And guess what they did then? They rebelled against God. They turned and went the other way as well. God tried everything. He understands parental pain. Michelle and I have five kids, and each one of them is unique in their own very special God-given way. And they each have an ability and this tremendous potential to make a big impact in the lives of other people for the kingdom of God. And, and as parents, we're trying the best we can, the best we know how to instill within them a faith and to teach them the truth of God's word and, and to convey the things in Scripture that, that God wants them to know. But, but here's the thing. The truth is, they're pastor's kids. And that makes it tough, because a lot of times you have a church full of, of people that they're kind of looking at it going, well, let's see how those pastor's kids turn out, right? You've got a community kind of looking and going, I, I know who his kids are, right? And it's tough, but at the end of the day, the, the truth of the matter is, Michelle and I are just imperfect people and imperfect parents. We've got kids who make mistakes just like your kids, and we're just trying our best to honor the Lord and do what he's called us to do. Sometimes our kids go astray and they do things we, we don't want them to do. I, I can remember it was a Sunday morning about 15 years ago. It was the first Sunday that uh, I was at Cedar Ridge Christian Church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And I was being introduced as the new youth minister there. And so um, Michelle and I go up on stage. And at the time, Josh was 11, Tanya was 10. Carissa was two and a half, and Michelle was great with child with Caitlin. So that, you know, kind of tells you, tells you where it was in, in the process. And as we're standing there, there's uh, Greg, uh, Greg Pittman, the senior pastor. He's introducing us, and we're standing over here to this side to kind of set the stage for you. Literally, we were on the stage. It was a lot like this one. You know, you've got your drums and your monitors and everything. Only instead of having uh, a stand like this one, Greg had this clear plastic uh, acrylic stand, and I've asked Jeff to show a picture of it. So that kind of gives you an idea of one similar. That's not it. It's just one like it. And so we're standing there, and I'm holding Carissa's hand. And as we're being introduced, and Greg is saying, I have no clue what he said, all I remember is what happened next. Carissa slipped out of my grasp. 
And then she got out of my reach. And she walked behind us and then around Greg and right up to between where he was standing as he's talking. And she puts her face right in the corner and smiles. And you're laughing because you can visualize it. The place erupted in laughter because they were seeing it. And I remember standing there looking at Michelle going, you know, what do you do? We had no clue what to do. And I use that illustration to say there are times that that you've got a a grip and you think things are fine. And then they they get loose and they go and they they do something you you don't really want them to do. Now, was that a big deal? (laughs) No. But there are times that it is a big deal. What do you do when your child runs from your grip, from your love? What do you do whenever they run from God's grip and God's design for life? What, What do you do when you have a prodigal? If you have a prodigal, you know the pain that's associated with having a prodigal. It's hard. And the thing about it is, it doesn't have to be a child to be a prodigal. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend. Someone who is running away and turning their back upon God, and it's, it's hurting the people. What do you do when someone we love runs away from God? There's a passage of scripture that I mentioned there in Luke chapter 15, and it tells a story about a runaway, a prodigal, and the unbelievable love of a father. Look at verse 11 of of Luke chapter 15. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided property between them. little commentary on that. If you know how this was set up in Jewish times, for a son to say to the father, give me my share of the estate, was basically saying, Father, I want you dead. I wish you were dead. You are as good as dead to me because the only time they got their share of the estate was when the father passed away. So the son was saying, Father, you're dead to me. Give me what's mine. And the father, out of love, gave his son what he asked for. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And that's what prodigals do. Prodigals set off for a distant country country. Sometimes it's a, it's a distant spiritual country. They say, you know what? All this Jesus stuff, this Christianity, this faith, I just don't buy it anymore. I'm not going to buy into this just because you say it's true, mom and dad. I, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. They go off to a distant country morally. They, they say, mom and dad, you've got all these rules. All these rules that, that you say are right, but, but who's to say you're right? Who's to say that you've got this all figured out? I want to do this and I want to do that. And so they set off and they do what they want to do in a distant moral country. That's what this son did here in the story. Whenever you see a prodigal, oftentimes there are three common things with prodigals. And I invite you to write these down. There's more and and all this, but I think here are three things that I think are generally true. They generally become increasingly self-centered increasingly, notice that word, because we're all self-centered. It's just a matter of to what degree. And, and uh, they focus more on, well, this is what I want to do. I really don't care what you think. This is all about me. This is where I want to go. This is who I want to go and do this with. And so they, they just kind of tell you, you know what, forget it. Just forget it. I'm going to go do my own thing. I don't care what you think. It's really all about me. And they may never say it exactly like that, but that's what they say. And trying to get them to see how their decisions not only are going to impact them, but how their decisions impact others is very, very difficult, if not impossible. Secondly, prodigals think that they know all the answers. They know all the answers, and that's really tough on parents, right? 
I know it was for us. When our oldest daughter, who was 14 at the time, basically said, Mom and Dad, you don't know squat. You're stupid. You're out of touch. You just don't get it. I talked to Michelle just about this to make sure that, you know, I was portraying this accurately. But there were times that we would just look at our daughter, who had no, really no life experience, but she thought she had all the answers. And we were hurting because all of a sudden, this child that we love, that we've invested in, that we would really do anything for, we were stupid. Didn't want to hear it. Didn't listen. She already knew all the answers. Didn't need to hear anything from us or anyone else. There's, there's a third common ingredient. The prodigal demands immediate gratification. That's what the son said. The son says, give me my share of the estate and give it to me now. I, I want to go out and do my own thing now. I want to party right now. I want to experience all the things that life has to offer, and I want to experience them right now. Wait till I'm married? Are you kidding me? Come on. Finish school? Ah. Who needs an education? I already know everything. I want to live life. I want to experience things. I don't just want to, to settle for the boring life that, that you have, mom and dad. Prodigal. Self-centered. They know it all. And they want what they want. And they want it right now. If you continue reading the passage of scripture from Luke chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, it basically shows you the downward spiral of the prodigal son. And it just you know, describes in, in detail what happens to him there. And just let me say that when a prodigal leaves the, the protective parameters of God, they're eventually going to go down, eventually at some point. And, and some of you, you may be a prodigal right now, and, and sin, let's be honest, just be really honest, sin, it can be fun for a little while. There is no doubt about that, that it can be tempting and it can, it can be exciting and it can be those things, but don't kid yourself. Later today or tomorrow or next week or next year and the year after that, at some point, your sin is going to find you out. And when it does, as K. Arthur says, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sin will take you down. One of the dangers when we read a story like this in Scripture is we can kind of compartmentalize it and we can say, that is a nice story that Jesus told, and look at how it all turns out, and it's, it's all good. But unfortunately, it's not just a story in Scripture. It's a story that's written each and every day. A child says, Mom and Dad, you raised me in the church. You did the best you could. They would never tell you that. But they say, you, you did these things, but I don't believe it. I'm not sure there is a God. And even if there is a God, I don't need him. I, I don't want him. I'm sick of all the rules in this house. I'm going to go live the way I want to live. So your child goes out and makes new friends. All the while, you're, you're trying to steer them and trying to figure out what to do. But they go make new friends and, and join the party scene and, and start drinking. And then the drinking turns to drugs and the drugs turn to, to harder drugs. And, and all the while, they're, they're searching for physical pleasure and ways for whoever and whatever way and whoever's interested. And before long, you know that you're, you, you get the call that your child is in jail. And when we got the call, can I tell you the truth? We were happy about that. Because we thought, finally, something else will get her attention, and she has finally hit bottom. Interesting thing about prodigals, they're hard-headed. 
And they keep going and going and going in and out of rehab, in and out of jail, dropped off by her friends at the door of the hospital after an overdose. The doctor looking her in the eyes and saying, you are so lucky to be alive. Do something with your life. As parents thinking, surely this is what God's going to use to get her attention. Now we are there. But no. As parents, you watch your child go through this. And you're hoping for a miracle, because that's the only thing you see that could change things. And you wonder what to do next, because it's tearing you up on the inside, and it hurts to go through it. And yet, I believe with all my heart that it hurts God more. That our Heavenly Father understands what we're going through. As a parent, you may find yourself asking what we ask us. Where did we go wrong? How did we mess up? What should we have done differently? And you have to fight not to fight with your spouse. You have to fight hard not to play the blame game of, well, you were too strict and you didn't show enough affection. You didn't give enough freedom. If you just would have... It didn't. You try your best not to tear each other apart. You talk about what you should have done. Should we have put her in private school instead? Should we have sent her to the children's ranch instead of the children's home? Should we have... All these different things that you lay awake at night staring at the ceiling, just kind of going through your head going, man. All the while praying this prayer, God, please show us what we need to see. Help us learn what we need to learn so that we don't have to go through this again with any of our other children. Because we don't want a do-over in this. Parents, if you have a prodigal, couple things that I want to share to you that others have shared with me, and it's just, uh, it's comforting, at least for us as parents. Rest assured, it's not all your fault. Sure, there are some things you could have done different, some things maybe you could have done better. And yes, you have a huge influence on the life of your child, but here's the thing. Just like you can't take all the credit whenever they do something good, (laughs) you can't take all the blame when they do something wrong either. They have free will and they have choice and they, they do those things and they make those choices. God has called you to be a parent, to do the absolute best job you can by reading his word, making it be a part of who you are and, and letting that be an example to your children, to live that way and so that you can influence them in that way. But the truth of the matter is that God is the only one that can bring them out of where they are. He's the only one that can affect them in such a way that they will come home. And I want to encourage you and challenge you and caution you to not let yourself get into that place where you're questioning yourself so much that you question your faith, that you question your relationship with the Lord, and that you allow Satan to start winning the battle that he's fighting. Don't let him do that. Because he will do whatever it takes to take you down, even if it means hurting the loved ones around you. Don't give in that way. If you have a prodigal, a son or a daughter like we do, a friend or a family member, what do you do? I want to suggest three things that we do. I'm a guy. I like to be able to do something, all right? So here you go. Three things that that I want to suggest that are scriptural that that we can do. The first one is this. We need to have unwavering prayer. Unwavering prayer. Our 11-year-old son, Cale, prays every night for Tanya. 
He prays that God will keep her safe and that God will put people in her life that will help direct her back to him. And I have to be really transparent and stand before you and tell you that I don't. (laughs) I find myself growing really tired and really weary of praying that prayer because there are times that I just feel like it's not making any difference. And then I pray with Kale, and I'm reminded to have faith like a child that God can do these things. And it renews me to pray. I'm reminded to pray. Paul said this to the church in Colossae, Colossae in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. What do we do? We don't stop praying for sure. There, we don't stop praying for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is because we have to believe that, that God can do what only God can do. You see, oftentimes we do this, and we're guilty of doing this. I know I'm guilty of doing this. We say such things as this. Well, we've done everything we know to do. We've tried counseling. We've tried intervention. We've tried a children's home. We've tried rehab. We've taken the door off of her room. We've made a contract. We've given freedom. We've forgiven everything and started over. We've grounded. We've tried treatment facilities. We've tried it all. I guess now all that's left to do is pray. And I wonder how insulting that is to God. We've done it all, God. I guess the only thing left... Man, prayer should be the first thing we do, isn't it? Prayer should be what we're relying on and depending upon. Because whenever we try to do it all in all our last resort, I guess we'll pray and trust God. Man, we get it backwards. We need to pray. And not some nice Sundays, you know, Sunday morning or Sunday school prayer like we do here, which is probably appropriate. But this gut-wrenching, on-your-knees, emotionally spent prayer, crying out to God and telling him how you really feel and what you really think because he can handle it. And he wants to know these things. You pray until you're empty and, and you can't pray anymore and you just give it all to God. And, and it's encouraging to know that, that Scripture tells us that, that whenever we don't know what to pray, in Romans chapter 8 it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. We pray for our daughter, Tanya, and we pray that she will hit bottom. And that is a tough prayer to pray because we don't know how deep that bottom truly is. But we pray that God will do whatever it takes in her life to bring her back to him. We have to have unwavering prayer. Number two, we also have to live with unending patience. We have to have unending patience. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I had this uh, text conversation with our oldest son, Josh, earlier this month. I said, uh, have you heard from your sister, Tanya? Yes, right after her birthday. Wanted to know if she was getting her birthday gift from Papa. And I said, got it. Sigh. At least we know she's still alive. We haven't heard from her since February. Almost six months of nothing. Josh says, yeah, I just don't understand. I said, there is no understanding. Just acceptance, prayer, and patience. No easy answers for sure. Isn't it 
easier to tell someone else that than to really believe it yourself sometimes? And Josh says, yeah, I guess. It's hard to have that patience. And yet when we look at the story in verse 20 of Luke chapter 15, it says, but while he, talking about the son, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And what that indicates to us is perhaps maybe the father was out on the edge of his property or maybe he was on the front porch as we've often visualized it that he was watching and waiting and looking for his son the father didn't write him off the father didn't say that's no son of mine you can't do those things you can't act that way you can't go to those places and still be my child instead he was looking for him he was waiting and as a parent that's hard to do it's hard to be patient but we have to have that patience. And then the third thing, we have to live with unconditional love. This is one of the most amazing scriptures or stories in all of scripture. The father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son and Jewish men didn't run in that day. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Notice that the father did what the son did not deserve at all. The father went out to him. And then if you continue reading the story, what you find out is the father said, go grab Bessie, our favorite cow, and kill it because we're going to have steak tonight, Right? We're going to have a party, grab my best robe and put it on my son, cover up his filth with the cleanliness that I can offer to him, get my biggest ring to signify that he's still my son, and I honor him and I love him. And this son of mine was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive, and the the father rejoiced over his son. Unconditional love. One more bit of transparency for me this morning. one of the things that's really scary for me. When Tanya does come back to the Lord, and I believe she will, will I be enough like Christ to show her that unconditional love? Because after all, God showed that to me. Because that's the point of this story, and, and that's the point of of life, and, and that's what I want you to, to hear more than anything else this morning is, is Jesus told this story, and it applies to each and every one of us. Know it, believe it or not, you are the prodigal. I'm the prodigal. We've all run away from God our Father. We've gone to a distant moral country. We've gone to a distant spiritual country. We've lived life our own way. We've said to God, hey, you know what? I know this. I can handle this. I don't need you. And we we get out from underneath his protection and we suffer the consequences of our sin. And God loves us to the point that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And he's there waiting for us, waiting for us to come home. And he will run to us and meet us and wrap his arms around us. He wants to do that for you. He wants you to experience and discover his life-changing love in a way that you've never experienced it before. God loves you. And he wants that relationship with you, a father to a son, a parent to a child. And he wants you to know and experience all the blessings. He wants you to know that he has a feast prepared for you. He has a robe to cover you. He has a ring to signify that you are his children. He loves you. And the opportunity for you is to respond to him and to that love and to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And I don't know if you've done that. I don't know if you are willing to say, you know what, I am a prodigal and I've walked away from what God has offered to me. But God loves us. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The question for you today is, will you receive his love? 
Will you come walking toward him and allow him to come running toward you? If you want to talk to someone, if you have a decision that you need to make today, we invite you to make your way over to the cross, to to no longer be that prodigal who's out, but to be that prodigal who's come home and to experience his unconditional love in your life. Stand with me. The band's going to lead us. You make your way over to the cross, and we'll meet you there.